We are continuing in our study through the book of Joshua. And today's message is about looking at our spiritual mirror. So if you look at the altar this morning, you'll see a mirror with scripture there. You also see chains, because we know that when we look into the spiritual mirror, when we let God's word transform our lives and we see the things that God wants to do in our lives, we're broken free of those chains in our life. And we all have them, every single one of them. And we don't like to always admit it. In fact, I like to say, no one really likes to look in the mirror. Right? Do I get an amen? Amen. We don't like to look in the mirror. Well, I remember back when I was in middle school, one day I was walking by a mirror and I saw that great hair that I had. It's not there anymore, sorry. Um, And I stopped and I looked. And that day I liked looking in the mirror. And for a while I was looking in the mirror every time I'd walk by. And I realized that was just kind of a thing that middle school boys do. All of a sudden, we sort of discovered the mirror. But the rest of my life has certainly not been that way. And for most of us, if we're honest, we don't like to look in the mirror. I know also because we recently put a new Zoom room in our church. That means we have a room that has a great big, huge TV, 55 inches, and it's got a state-of-the-art camera, and it's got 16 little microphones, so you can run either a Bible study from there, so it's online, or you can have it hybrid, so you can have people there and people who tune in. Much to my dismay, when we had it all mounted, I discovered that a couple of the chairs are out of the view of the camera. And I thought, well, that sort of defeats the purpose because the idea is that everybody at home should be able to have the camera on everyone. Then the first time we ran a Bible study, guess where everybody wanted to sit? And the edges without having the camera on them. And I discovered what we actually just did is figured out how to have the most popular chairs in the Zoom room, because people don't like to look at themselves in the mirror. We don't like to be on camera. We don't like to take a focus on ourselves. That's true with our physical selves, and that's also true with our spiritual selves. In Joshua chapter 6, now we did not look at that text last week, but David got us prepared for the story. We heard about the city of Jericho. Huge walls around this city. And it looked like it was an absolutely overwhelming force, and that's what happens in our lives. We see things that are like the walls of Jericho. There's a problem. There's something that we need to deal with, something that we're concerned about. And what did we see the children of Israel did? They prayed. They sought God. They set their camps right outside the walls, and and they did their whole ritual to acknowledge the fact that God was sovereign and God was in control. And then in chapter 6, the walls of Jericho come down. They march around the the walls for six days. The seventh day, they march around seven times. They go with the priests. They blow the horns. They yell. The walls literally come down. And that's the same thing that happens in our lives. We get ourselves concerned about something. There's a wall of Jericho in our life, something that seems insurmountable. And so we pray, and we trust God, and we give it to the Lord. Following? Don't we do that? It's like, God, I just can't handle this. And we right-size ourselves out of those moments. And miraculously, God takes the walls down. And we're thrilled, and we're like, wow, that is incredible. But then we do the same thing that the children of Israel did. Listen to the last verse of chapter 6. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Did you catch that? Whose fame spread? Joshua's. Whose fame should have spread? God's. 
God took down the walls. God takes down the walls in our lives. But we become like Joshua, and we become like the children of Israel, and things go well, and so we start to take credit for it. And then we're told to look at the spiritual mirror, and when things are going well, we don't want to look at the spiritual mirror. We want to pat ourselves on the back. We want to start thinking, wow, I'm doing pretty well here. I I guess I got life figured out. And this is why we have that saying, yesterday's success leads to today's failure. Sometimes it's because yesterday we trusted God and today we aren't. And sometimes it's because we just do the same thing and you're not going to walk around every single city the same way because that's how God asked them to do around Jericho. But if we're going to follow God, we're going to do things God's way every single time. Amen? Every time. Because each circumstance and everything that we face in our life, God's going to give us a guidance, so we turn the concerns over to him. And so as we look at this text, I'd like to first give you a note about a theological term that nobody came here prepared for this morning, unless you were in the last service, at which point you don't count. And it's the word theocracy. Theo, the first part, means God. It's a theological word, theo, like theology, study of God. Democracy. It's about our government, government of the people, by the people, for the people. Theocracy is government run by God. Institution fully under the realm of God. The God's in control. The God's sovereign. Now, in the Old Testament, when we're looking at something like Joshua, we're dealing with theocracy. These are people who don't have a king. They don't have a government. They're saying, God, you lead us and we follow you. Some people try to apply this to modern governments, and we have a problem with that, that we don't have modern governments that are theocracies, but we certainly have many places that we can apply it, and that's what I want us to think about for a moment. We can certainly apply it to the church. This church better be under God's sovereign rule and not ours, or it's going to fail. This is not about us. This is not about Pastor Stan or any of the pastors of this church or any of the leaders of this church. This is God's church. And we seek for God to lead us. And there's times when we're like, you've got to be kidding, God. Okay, we'll do it your way. But it's hard because God's sovereign and we follow God. The same thing is true in our families. Our families should fall under God. Now, that does not mean that everybody in your family is a Christian. In fact, the New Testament makes accommodations for that. And it says... The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband, and the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. And then it goes on to say, therefore, your children are holy. Your family's holy. If even one person in a Christian family is a Christian, is given their life to God, then we believe, amen, God has a plan for every person in that family, and that's why you're there. And so you follow God, and you commit your family to God. And when you struggle with someone, and someone's having a hard time, you give them to the Lord. It's being under God's control. It's being under God's sovereign rule. And so as we think about that idea of putting God in the rightful place, sometimes I use the old circle. I put it up here where you imagine a circle, and that's our life, and you put a throne. Like, who's sitting on the throne? We can have Christ in the life, but ourselves on the throne, or we can have Christ on the throne. This is about putting God on the throne of our life putting our will under the Lord so he leads and he guides us constantly. And then when we do this, we're able to look at the spiritual mirror. And we're able to take an inventory of our life and we're able to use scripture and look in the mirror and say, God, where do you want me to change? What are the things you want to tell me? Which means this is the message that we don't listen to with our elbows. 
We know how to listen with our elbows. That's when you jab the person beside you and say, honey, that was for you. <laughs> now, today's message is for me. This is, God, how do you want me to learn to have my life under your sovereign rule so that I get your guidance in my life and I can understand what you want to do with my life? And then we discover in the spiritual mirror, we have to begin with this tough question, where have I compromised? That's a tough question for every one of us to ask, but that's where it begins. Lord, what's my part in this? See, we know where everybody else is compromised. Like, I could dismiss church right now. We could gather in a circle, and you could all tell me everything that everybody else has done wrong, and I could tell you all the things that I've done wrong. We do great with taking other people's inventories. But this is about taking my inventory, me looking at myself. Where have I compromised? What needs to change in my life? Why am I getting upset? Why are things frustrating me? One time somebody called me up on the phone and they said, I am really upset about something. And I said, you know what I've learned? When I'm upset, I'm really upset. And the person said, oh, absolutely. This person did such and such and such. And I said, do you know what I've learned? When I'm upset, I'm upset. The person stopped and said, so you're telling me that this is just about me being upset? I said, oh, no, no, I'm not telling you anything about you. I'm telling you, I've learned in my life, when I'm upset, I'm upset. It's about me, what I allow in my mind and my thoughts and my feelings and what I'm going to act on. So as we talk about this, we're asking that question, where, Lord, have I compromised? Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. I like the first word, but. We just had victory. We turned it over to God. We did it the Lord's way. It all went well, but... And it's kind of like what happens in our life. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabadai, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You see, in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 through 20, God was really clear. Folks, we're at war here. There's a battle going on. There are people out there who want to destroy you. And when we're in a military campaign, God was clear, you do not take from the enemy. You do not profit yourself because you're going through a town and there's a victory and people aren't in a home. You don't just walk in and grab somebody out of their house and take things that aren't yours. And yet what happens, this guy comes along and he sees some stuff and we'll look at it more. And he says, wow, that looks nice. I think I'll take it for myself. Did you know that the Hague Convention of 1899 and 1907 said the very same thing? In the middle of a military campaign, looting is a war crime. If a government goes in and is in the middle of a battle and a soldier steals something from someone else, that's a war crime. It's the same thing God is saying here. Folks, we're in a battle. You do what God asks you to do, but you don't profit from other people. You don't take it. Same thing is true in our lives. We don't, in ministry or in any area of our life, we don't use other people so that they become victims to us. Achan, however, couldn't help himself. Isn't that what we always like to say? Oh, but I couldn't help myself. You don't realize how tough it was. And so in Joshua 7:21, later in the text, we hear Achan's words. He said, when I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia... It was like a nice car sitting out there. I just couldn't help myself. You know, the keys were in it. 
200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. Now they're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. You think the guy didn't know he did something wrong? He didn't walk out and say, look, Joshua, what I took. No, he took it, he hid it, and he took it into his tent. When nobody was looking, he dug a hole and he put it down there. And he said, nobody will know my compromise. I hid it. I tucked it away. Now what we do with compromise in our own lives? We, we tuck it away. We, we don't tell anybody. We maybe feel bad about it for a moment, and we feel a little bit of guilt, and we say, I, I don't even want to think about it. And we build our own holes in the ground under our tent and try to make things disappear. Our mirror needs to help us see our actions and our thoughts. Our mirror needs to open up ourselves before God. So this is not about shame and feeling awful, because remember, at the point where Achan took the stuff, he could have gone to Joshua and he could have said, you know, man, I I messed up. I get it. I did wrong. Here's the stuff. He had plenty of opportunity to do that. Same thing is true in our lives. When those thoughts go through our minds and we start thinking, man, I'm going to mess up here, we can always pick up a phone and call somebody ahead of time and say, hey, give me some help. Or when we've messed up, we can say, hey, Help me out here. Like, this is what I've done. We can come clean. We can be honest with ourselves. And we can let God start doing that work in our lives. And that's why this isn't about perfection. It's about integrity. This is not about never doing something wrong. Because we're going to do things wrong. Amen. I'm going to say that again. We are going to do things wrong. Amen? Amen. My dad used to say, we sin in thought, word, and deed every day. We got a great track record. If you got up this morning, guess what? You're going to sin today. So am I. It's part of our life. But doing that doesn't mean that we become people of no integrity and hide it and and tuck it away and then wonder what's festering in our lives. So Achan could have immediately gone to Joshua. He could have come clean, but he chooses not to. And that's why this entire message has to be done under the cross of Jesus. Because we look at the cross and we remember that Christ died for us. So all the stuff that we hide, all the stuff that we've done wrong, all the things that we feel guilty for, he takes them all away. We're forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. We just need to trust him. If you've never put your trust in Christ, come talk to me after worship and we'll talk about that. Putting our faith first and foremost in the one who forgives us so that the things in our life that need to change. We can be honest about it because we can do it in terms of the fact that we have been forgiven and therefore that work of God making our lives better. We don't need to have shame and guilt. We don't need to be hiding stuff under the floor of our tent hoping that nobody sees it. But we can have an open, honest conversation and start saying, I need to have these things dealt with in our lives. Where have I compromised? That's where the spiritual mirror begins. But then it asks the second question, where am I being prideful? Now, pride is different than compromise. Pride is that I deserve it. I'm better. I need it for me. A few years ago, I was up in a meeting up in New Hampshire, all-day meetings, denominational meetings. Tough day. Man, was I feeling bad for myself. And the meetings went long supposed to get out at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We didn't get out till like 4 or 4.30. By the end of the day, I was frustrated. I'm driving home, and I'm driving by Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and I think of my favorite restaurant. I could taste the hamburger. Sorry, I have cheap tastes. 
Hamburger and fries makes me happy every time. I let Regina know I'm going to stop at the restaurant. I'm going to get a quick bite to eat. I drive downtown, and I come to the stoplight, and right in front of me is a restaurant. Now I can really taste it. And a parking place opens up right in front of the restaurant. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm sitting there looking at that parking place, and that's no longer a parking place. Now that's my parking place. God gave me that parking place. So I'm sitting at the stoplight, and it's a one-way street going this way, and all of a sudden I think, hurry up. God, change those lights. Don't want anybody to take my parking place. And the cars go by, and I'm like, oh, no. With, oh, nope, they didn't go. Oh, good, okay, come on. Would the lights hurry up and change? And everybody drives by, and my parking place is still sitting there. The lights change, and the person coming the other direction takes a right, turns into my parking place, and I am ticked off. How dare you take my parking place? That is my place. That's what pride does to us. It puts us in the place where we think we are better than others or we deserve more than others or somehow our life is special beyond anyone else. And so it's not just about where do I compromise, it's where have I become prideful. Remember what the children of Israel did? They have God win the battle and they take credit. Goes right to pride. Look at what a great leader Joshua is. Let's appeal to the guy's pride. And so in verse 2, we see how pride begins just with life. It doesn't begin with us getting up in the morning and saying, I'm going to grab what I don't deserve, and I'm going to treat others poorly, and and I think I'm better. It just begins with life, like stopping at a stoplight and, and looking at a parking place. And pretty soon, we're just living life, and all of a sudden, pride starts getting in the way. Verse 2, we read these words. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon east of Bethel, and he said to them, go spy out the land. And the men went, and they spied out Ai. Nothing wrong with that. Stan drove into Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and looked for a restaurant to eat at. That's where pride begins. It just begins with us living our lives. One battle was over, and they wanted to see what the next battle was. They wanted to see what God was going to lead them to. But unfortunately, pride overstates us. Hear that? Pride makes me the great I am. So hear what happens when they go look at this thing. Verse 3, they returned to Joshua and they said to him, Hey man, (laughs) we're, we're good here. We have nothing to worry about. Don't have all the people go up, but only let about two or three thousand men go and attack. Don't make the whole people go and toil there for they're few. Immediately, they're like, we won that last battle. No, God won that last battle. You're a great leader. No, God put Joshua in control. And now, why do we need to even take the next battle seriously? This is nothing compared to what we just accomplished last time. So we do the same thing in our life. We struggle with something. Maybe it's a diet. And we're like, you know, God, I really need to do better. So we go out to dinner, and it's a huge dinner, best restaurant in town. We can have anything we want to eat, but we know this is going to be tempting. So we pray, Lord, just get me through tonight and help me make wise decisions. And we have nothing but a salad with a little bit of lemon juice on it, glass of ice water, and we feel great. And we have an amazing night, and we wake up in the morning, and we're like, wow. Now, we have prayed, and God has gotten us through a tempting situation, but now in the morning, we remember, wow, did I do well last night? Man, a couple of Pop-Tarts, that won't hurt me this morning, will it? 
and we take our will back and we start doing it our way. And all of a sudden, we start wondering, why is it that we get ourselves into trouble? Because we begin by trusting God, then we start living life, and then we become like the children of Israel. And what does pride lead to? It always leads to the same thing. It leads to failure. So verses 4 and 5, we hear that about 3,000 men went up from there, and they fled before the people of Ai. They lost. Immediately it goes poorly. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them and their descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Did you notice what was missing? Prayer. There was no prayer. That battle was not God's. That was the people's battle. Just like we do in our life. We turn it over to God. We ask God to guide us through something. Things go well, and we take the next one. We say, God, you can sit this one out. Like, you and I did pretty well last night. Well, it wasn't you and I who did well last night. It was you, God, who did well last night. But we start letting our ego and our pride and our great I am start coming in, and all of a sudden, things start falling apart. Last week, we heard how they consecrated themselves before the battle. This time, we hear crickets. Nothing. Life has its battles. Let's be honest. Life has battles. Your battle may be weight. Your battle may be finances. Your battle may be feelings. could be an addiction. It could be a problem at work. It could be something in your home. We have struggles and battles in our lives, and the battle belongs to the Lord, not to us. And as soon as we take the battle onto ourselves, we're getting prideful, and we fail. So we begin with prayer, and we turn it over to God, and then we turn it over to God. And when we do, we start discovering that God leads us. A mirror does us no good if we look into it and don't see anything. Mirror does us no good. Nice mirror up here. But if I look in it and, you know, have a smudge on my face and walk away and don't do anything with it, it did me no good. In the book of James in the New Testament, James says the same thing. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, it's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. It's pride, folks. I can do it myself. I got this covered. If somebody else starts to find out about something that I'm feeling bad about in my life, I'll just hide it in the basement of my house and nobody will know. I'll be like Aiken. How did it work for him? but we do the same thing. And our lives start to fall apart at those times, and so as we look at our pride, it's important to get ourselves right-sized before God. Now, I've asked this question in a couple of services, and I've only had a few people who have said that they know what this is. Again, if you were in the first service, you do not count, because they should know. And if they don't, then we have a bigger problem. But has anybody here heard of the Haystack prayer meeting? You're New Englanders. I'm going to give you a little bit of history. In 1806, at Williams College, there was a student named Samuel Mills, and he began to pray. He prayed because he was convicted that the American church was only focused on America. And we did missionary efforts, but it was all here. 
It was just us focusing on ourselves. And so if people in Western Mass wanted to do something for Boston, they'd send somebody to Boston to help out. Or when people went west, they would send missionaries out west. They would send doctors and nurses. And we did all kinds of stuff to help people spiritually, physically. We'd share the gospel. And we were very American-focused. And this guy, Samuel Mills, began to pray. And he said, Lord I believe that you would have us to start helping people overseas. So then what he did is he called together four of his friends, and they got together, and they did something really radical. They went to a grove of trees near the Hoosick River into a field that was called Sloan's Meadow, and they planned nothing. They prayed. They said, let's just get together and pray. And now there were five guys who are college students out at Williams College who were praying that God would lead the American church to start thinking beyond ourselves, beyond our borders, and do something other than just take care of ourselves. What strategy did they come up with? Zero. What plans did they come up with? None. They prayed. But being as they were in New England, it was a New England summer day, much like the weekend we're having. How many of you were outside yesterday? How many of you saw an interesting rainstorm come up? Same thing happened to these guys. They're out in this field and they're praying, and all of a sudden a thunderstorm comes up and it starts pouring rain. And there was a haystack nearby, so they went under the haystack and they continued praying under the haystack. And so they called themselves the haystack prayer meeting. Once they prayed that day, they decided to continue to get together. So weekly they got together and they prayed. They called themselves a haystack prayer meeting, and they continued to pray for missions outside of the United States. What God established through them was the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, the American Bible Society, which is certainly still around today, the United Foreign Mission Society, and in the first 50 years alone, out of that prayer meeting, with them planning nothing other than just praying and praying and turning it over to God, 1,250-plus missionaries went out from the United States, and the American missionary movement was born. What did they begin with, folks? What did they begin with? What plans did they have? Zero. They prayed. What did the children of Israel not do? They didn't pray. What do we do in our life and we mess it up? We do it our way and we don't pray. So if we are going to understand how we look into our spiritual mirror, we need to look at where we compromise and we need to look at where we need to get right-sized. And if we want to get right-sized, let's quit taking credit, let's quit taking blame, and let's turn the battles to God. Let's pray. Let's take the things that are concerning to us and hand them to God once and for all and quit taking our will back and thinking that we know better. And that's why once we start doing that, we start to ask the final question, what do I need to change? Where does God need to work in my heart? What are the things that the Lord is asking me to change? And it may be God's asking me to pray every day. It may be God's asking me to get into a scripture. It may be there's other things in my life that I need to deal with. But listen to verses 6 and 7. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on his, to the earth on his faith before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel... And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over to Jordan at all? Give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? It would have been better if we would have been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. 
Joshua's reaction was his willingness to change. He said, God, I get it. I've done wrong. And what they did and he did is what was normal in the ancient world. He ripped his clothes and he said, I'm wrong, God. And he fell on the ground and he put dust all over his face. Those are fascinating customs. We're not going to do any of them today. I'm not going to ask you if there's something you've done wrong in your life and God says there's a change to have you go out into our memorial garden and take dirt and put it all over your face. Because that's what they did in the ancient world, but it's still the same principles for us, is it not? What does contrition look like in our lives? I asked my wife. I said, Regina, help me. Somebody does something wrong, what are the things a person can do? So I didn't just get my answer. I think they were all directed back at me. I think these are what she wants me to do, so we'll see how well I do with these. Three words, I was wrong. Amen. It says, write a card, say I was wrong. Seven words, a seven-word card. Dear blank, I was wrong. Sincerely, your first name. How hard is that? Give a small gift as a token of remorse. Say, I'm really sorry, here's, here's something. It's not going to make up for it, but I just want you to know I care. Do something to make up for something we did wrong. Not to think that we somehow solve it, but say, Lord, I've been messing up in such an area in my life. Hey, how about if I do such and such or do it with another person? So when we get right-sized before God and our pride and our ego start getting in check, we can ask what needs to change. But here's the other thing. Don't miss the words that Joshua used. You see, in the Bible, there are over 100 names for God. In here, Joshua addresses God. Listen again as I read verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God. Hear those words? Lord God. Those are the words Adonai Yahweh. That means sovereign God. He doesn't just pray and he doesn't just say, hey God, I'm really sorry. He goes, sovereign ruler. I'm before the one who created it all. I'm before the one who's in control of it all. I'm going to quit thinking that I'm God and I'm going to put you back in your rightful throne. Sovereign Lord God. That's ultimately what it means when we look at what needs to change in our life. Because I've been married for 39 years, and my wife Regina knows by the way I dress her whether I am sorry or just trying to get away with something. She knows the difference in how I talk, whether what I'm talking about is something that I'm genuinely remorseful for and wrong in what I did, or whether I just want to move on with the day. And our relationship with God is really no different. The ultimacy of our getting into our right relationship with God is absolutely acknowledging where we've gone wrong and absolutely acknowledging our pride, but putting God back on the throne of our life. And that's really where we started with this. Are we showing a willingness to change? If so, are we taking our concerns to Adonai, Yahweh? Not to God, but to sovereign God. The Lord, the creator, the one who knows what we do wrong. The one who, when Achan is sitting in his tent thinking, nobody knows what I did, God knew what he did. The one who, when we think that somehow we're getting away with it in fooling others and ourselves, we're never fooling God. And so we have that opportunity to bring things to light and have them change. 
We must admit our need to change, but we must trust that God brings about the change. You see, looking in a spiritual mirror is not toughening it out and saying, I'm going to work harder tomorrow. It's stopping the work. It's stopping digging the hole and turning it over to God. It stops saying, I'm going to do it my way and it's going to work this time. And it's saying, Lord, I'm done trying to do it my way. I'm giving it back to you. As we close our service today, if you'd like to come talk to myself or one of the pastors, we'd be happy to talk to you. If there's things in your life that God's telling you need to be opened up and changed, we need to learn to trust that God is sovereign and in control and wants us to have our lives perfected and become the people that God wants us to be. So I invite you to bow your heads and hearts as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that even though Achan thought he was getting away with something, he certainly wasn't, and you knew it. And deep inside, he did. And it's easy to focus on what he did wrong, but we knew they all did wrong. For they all quit trusting in you and putting you first and starting to think that they had accomplished much at Jericho, and we tend to do the same things. When things go well, we love to take credit. Help us to put you back in your rightful place in our lives. We thank you for an opportunity to be together in worship, an opportunity to sing your praises and to read your scriptures and help us have that spiritual mirror before us that we would understand what you would like to do in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.